0: What is the condition of our heart? What is the condition of our heart? We like to think that once we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that everything is a-okay with our spiritual heart. But in reality, when we trust Christ as our Savior, the Lord is just beginning. A process in us of cleansing and growing and developing our heart to be after Him. And Jesus speaks directly to this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. He talks about how our mind and our heart, which from the Scripture's perspective are basically one of the same, are connected to each other, and how they have to be renewed after Him because of the possibility, the real possibility, of the issues that we struggle with on the inside. And if you'll turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. As you turn there, allow me to set the stage for this passage of Scripture. This teaching takes place with the twelve disciples around the region called Galilee, which is in the northern area of Israel, in approximately AD 29. It is about a year prior to the crucifixion, and Jesus, as he moves into this final year with his disciples, is doing everything he can to prepare them for what's coming, even though they don't realize what's coming. Now, in that day and age, there were numerous religious groups that had different emphasis, and one of those were the Pharisees. And when you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as someone has observed, it looks like there's a Pharisee under every rock and behind every tree. They were just all over the place. And one of the reasons that they were so prolific is that they were just that. They were all over the place. They are always showing up in the ministry of Jesus because Jesus agitated and irritated them no end. And so they're constantly trying to find ways to get Jesus in trouble. And such is the case here. Now, the Pharisees were known for all of the rituals they kept and for the extensive rule-keeping that they were involved in. They had a rule for everything under the sun. And the Pharisees in particular had taken the dietary laws of the Old Testament, in particular the book of Leviticus, and they had sort of expanded on them, and they had made all of those rules become a sign of spirituality. In other words, if you ate certain foods, you were spiritual. If you ate other foods, you were not spiritual. If you washed your hands at the right time in the right way, then that meant you were right with God. If you washed your hands in the wrong way at the wrong time, then it meant that you were not right with God. And so there were all of these rules and rituals that they said you had to keep. And Jesus' problem with the Pharisees is, is that they were so focused on externals keeping all the rules, following all the rituals, eating all the right food, washing your hands the right way, that they ignored the internal. And so what Jesus is going to say here to these folks is, listen, you've got to start focusing on the internal because what God is concerned about is not all these externals that you can see. In fact, what Jesus is saying to them in essence is when you focus exclusively on the externals and you're in ignoring the internal part of your life, the process of that means that you begin to be satisfied and settle for a walk with God that really is no walk with God at all. And so he begins here to lay out to them the condition of the heart and what has to happen inside of a person in order for them to be right with God. Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. For out of the heart, and he's going to paint a pretty... Difficult picture here. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, or blasphemy. These are what defile a person. But what to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, verse 20, You are so focused on whether your hands are washed or not, and washed in the right way when you eat. And then you say, well, you know, if you don't wash your hands, you don't wash them in the right way, then you're defiled. But Jesus says, listen, what defiles the person is not the condition of their hands, not the ritual that they follow or don't follow. follow but verse 19, it's what's coming out of your heart, what's coming out of the deep down inside of you. And then He enumerates that, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus says, that's where the problem is. That's what I'm going to address. That's what's got to be changed in you. Now, my sermon outline is contained in the back of your bulletin. If you follow along with me, i appreciate it. Now, Jesus says, verse 19, out of the heart come all of these problems. The issue of the heart, what is the heart? What does it symbolize? What does it speak of? Well, the physical heart in our bodies is the most important part of our bodies. If our heart's functioning correctly, we got a pretty good chance of staying in this world. If the heart isn't functioning correctly, then we're in tough shape. Those of you that have heart issues, you can say amen on that one. And so Jesus picks up the metaphor of the heart here, and He says, Listen, if your spiritual heart is in good shape, and you're focused on that, and it's clean, etc., then you're okay. But if your spiritual heart is a mess, then you're in trouble all the way around. Now, this metaphor of the heart that he speaks of here carries the idea of someone's entire mental and moral activity, what we think and what we feel. It speaks of the depths of who we are. It speaks to what we dwell on, what we focus our minds on, our conscience, our will, our purpose, our decision-making. It's the seed of all of that, the intentions. You see, Jesus is not just concerned about what we do. He is even more concerned and focused on why we do it they were, the Pharisees were settling for, man, we do all the right stuff. And Jesus said, yeah, you may be doing the right things, but you're not doing the right things for the right reason. And what I want to do is reach inside of you, identify what's going on inside of you, because it's a lot easier to focus on how clean your hands are than how clean your heart is. And I know what's naturally going on inside your heart. And what Jesus is trying to say to us here, when he begins to delineate what's wrong with the heart, is that sin permeates our entire being. It dominates us. It enslaves us like chains wrapped around someone. And Jesus is saying, and this is a tough picture, but Jesus is saying that down in the depths of who we are, what defines us, what makes us, what... It, our intentions, our purposes, etc., Jesus is saying basically if it's not under the control of my Holy Spirit, if I haven't touched you, if I'm not changing you, then Jesus said "You're basic, we're basically rotten at the core. Now, none of us likes to think that about ourselves. I understand that. But I can't get better until I take a realistic look through the eyes of Jesus as to what's wrong with me. And just like we saw in the video, we say things we don't mean to say, we do stuff, we think, later, why in the world did I do that? We slip and we get involved in junk that we shouldn't get involved in, and we think, how in the world did I go down that slippery slope? The problem is inside of here. And until I deal with what's inside of here, then it's not going to get any better. Now, Jesus doesn't let us off the hook because in verse 19, He begins to identify what's inside of here that He's got to change. And I would much preferred that He could have just said, our heart is a mess and then just jumped onto something else and we wouldn't have to get into this. One of the things that I've always found when, we re- when I read the Word of God is that God has this way of getting very notoriously sort of needling at us and get, pointing His finger right at the problem in our lives and saying, "You got to deal with this." And I, you know, we wish He wouldn't do that. We like for Him just sort of skip over. It's much easier to say, "Lord, would You forgive me of my sins?" and keep it generic and general instead of saying, "Lord, would You forgive me of?" and then I got to start naming the areas of my life that are out of whack with God, that are in disobedience to Him. And that is exactly what Jesus does here. Now, as I go through these, what I want to ask you to do is this. Instead of us looking at these and saying, well, that doesn't apply to me, and that doesn't apply to me, and that doesn't apply to me. Instead, say, Lord, which one of these applies to me? And how does it apply to me? Because that's the only way I'm going to get deliverance. You see, deliverance begins as I get honest with God. He is already honest with me, and I begin to accept what He's pointing out in my life. That's where deliverance begins. First of all, verse 19, he says, evil thoughts. Now the idea of the Greek word that's used there is rather fascinating. It means a calculation, plotting, planning. Jesus said from down here, there is the very real possibility that we're going to plot to sin. We are going to plan to sin. We're going to calculate how we're going to sin. I have to think it before I say it. I have to think it and plan it before I do it. And Jesus says that we do a whole lot more plotting and planning and calculating when it comes to sin than what we realize we do. He says we're engaging the mind at thinking it out. So why may it may appear to us often, man, I don't know what happened to me. I just slid down the slope. If we go back and we are really honest about it, we begin to plot it, to think it, to plan it, to put a plan of action into motion. Now, sometimes we can do that very quickly, and sometimes it takes a longer period of time, depending on the sin. But Jesus says those evil thoughts or the way we calculate it, we plot it, we plan it, we put it together. Verse 19, continuing with that thought of evil thoughts, what is it that we're planning and we're calculating and we're working on and we're plotting? The idea there of evil is doing harm to someone, getting even with someone, not caring how much it hurts them as long as I get satisfaction from it. Have any of us ever had somebody hurt us and we just want to sort of put a plan together that we begin to work on uh, to get even with them? Now, sometimes it can be passive-aggressive and sometimes it can be out there and doing it. Well, we just sort of start putting that plan of action in place. And the idea when he says these evil thoughts here, the thoughts be the planning and the calculating, the evil being the doing harm, the getting even, the hurting someone is that I'm actually thinking bitterness, and I'm planning out of my bitterness, and I'm acting out of my bitterness. And if we do that long enough, we will become a bitter person. Everything that we're seeing in life begins to be seen through the glasses of our bitterness. And so the bitterness begins to spread... So that I'm not just trying to focus on getting even with the one person. I am rather beginning to see every life situation in relationship in that context. And it just begins to bleed over into every part of my life. And Jesus says that's a part of us that's there. We've got to recognize. We've got to see that there's a very strong possibility that we'll go in that direction. And we've got to be willing to say, Jesus, be Lord of this and cleanse it, as we're going to see in a few minutes. Next, murder. Murder is taking others out so that I can be first. Now most of us would probably sit back this morning and think, well, you know, I haven't taken somebody's life and and I don't think I could ever see myself coming to the place of taking a gun, a knife, or whatever and taking somebody out. But murder can happen in more ways than just physically taking a person's life. Murder can happen in trying to murder somebody's reputation, murder their name, destroy them, destroy what we know means the most to them. And interestingly enough, even on physical murder, John Wilkes Booth, who took the life of President Abraham Lincoln, it's interesting if you read his life story, he just didn't get up one morning and decide he was going to kill the president. He nurtured a hatred for Abraham Lincoln over a period of time that led to the plotting of how he was going to take the president's life. It began as a small seed inside of him that he nurtured and he nurtured and he nurtured. Now verse 19, the next area that Jesus identifies is adultery. He will speak here of adultery and sexual immorality. And while they are both in the area of sexual sin, they are two different expressions of that sin. Adultery is looking at someone else's spouse that is not my spouse and saying, I want that person... I've got to have that person, I have a right to that person, and I'm going to break up that relationship and take that person away from their spouse. That is the idea of this. It's taking what's not mine through the expression of sexual sin. And Jesus said that is inside of us. Because Jesus is saying... We can look at someone else, we can look at someone else's marriage, and then we can begin to think as we look at their marriage, well, I want what belongs to someone else. And because of my feelings or my love or whatever term we try to use to rationalize it, I have a right to take because my needs and my desires justify what I want. And Jesus says this is inside of us. And folks, I can't stress this enough. I know often what we say is, well, as a follower of Jesus, I would never think that way or act that way. But when we put ourselves in a place that we think we are beyond something, that is the very time that we have set ourselves up to potentially fall for the very thing that we think we could never do. The best way to make sure that I do not fall into what I'm talking about here with Jesus' list here is to realize that I am at any point in my life capable, if I go down the wrong road without the Holy Spirit of God, I am capable of any sin. And when I recognize my own vulnerability, then I'm going to be even more cautious to make sure I don't go down that road. Now, he moves next to sexual immorality, and that is basically sexual sin beyond just inside the bounds of marriage or taking someone else's spouse. It begins with a fantasy in the mind, a sense of, I want to be served. I have a right to my own self-gratification. Now, let me say this, and I realize this is tough stuff uh, for me to go through and preach, and I appreciate your patience with me as I'm going through this. Uh, It's even tougher to be here than it is to be sitting where you are, all right? So be patient with me. But when he talks here about this and this concept of self-gratification and that i've got a right to whatever i want when i want it the way i want it because it makes me feel good and i like it etc cetera, etc cetera. the more i become conditioned in my life to self gratification anywhere in my life the easier it is for me to succumb in this specific area of my life you follow what i'm saying in other words when I begin to say well I got a right to this because it makes me happy and I got a right to this and I got a right to that and my life becomes an ex- constant self gratification journey then when it comes to this particular area I will play the same game because I'm playing it everywhere else in my life anywhere I've got a right to it I got to have it now etc cetera, etc cetera. Interestingly the word that is translated here and I can't pronounce it correctly out of Greek all right so just be patient on that one but the word that is used here in the Greek is the word from which we get our English word, pornography. And tied into that is the idea that I've got to look at it, think about it, fantasize over it, and that's what sets me up to fall into that sin. You see... Jesus has got to be Lord of my eyes and where they go and what they focus on. And Jesus has got to be Lord of my mind, what I choose to dwell on. And if He's not Lord of my eyes and He's not Lord of my mind, then I'm going to get into trouble sooner or later. Next, verse 19, theft. It's warning what's not mine, and I don't have a right to it. And forcefully choosing to take it. And the origin of theft is, I want more. i got to have more, because the more is going to satisfy me, and the more is going to make me happy. And you see, the problem with the more is the more becomes an idol in my life, because ultimately and finally, Jesus is what satisfies me. And folks, in our culture today with materialism, it is easier, it is easy to start thinking that if I get the more and I have the more, and in the sense, I begin to, if you will, steal from my family's financial security, steal from finances that I need for the future, because if I get it today and I have it today and I have more of it today, I will be happy. And what I'm saying by that is the stuff That I'm taking today and the financial security that I'm burning through and stealing from tomorrow is what's gonna make me happy in life when Jesus is the only one who's gonna make us happy in life. Have you ever noticed that what we think we gotta have one Christmas is in a garbage heap by the next Christmas often? The stuff that we think we just gotta have doesn't satisfy. It takes more and more to satisfy less and less. That's the theft he's talking about. Verse 19, false witness is the idea of giving false testimony or evidence against someone. It's warning someone on life on our terms, even if that's not truthful. Giving that false witness. And sometimes that can even just be endo And then slander The root of the word slander there is abusive abusive language. And basically, it would be in two areas. One is how we use the Lord's name and the things of the Lord. Just using His name with curse words, using His name in a slang way with it. And it is also the idea of just the language that comes out of our mouth and what that says. And it is so easy in our culture to take certain words and for them to just become so easy to, to say it out wrong all the time and to get so used to that and so conditioned to that and so acceptable. In fact, in some circles, the way the mess that comes out of our mouth is our way of, of earning credibility. You know, man, I can cuss well. So that means I'm somebody. I remember when I was in the sixth grade, I was in middle school. I I learned how to, you know, to to use the words, and it was impressive to my best friend, and so we learned how to cuss together, et cetera, because we were becoming men because we could, you know, throw those words out there. Uh, We weren't becoming men. We were just little boys who had learned bad words. We learned how to speak. That's basically what it amounted to. And we were throwing that we were little boys who were going to stay little boys as long as we felt like we could do that. But Jesus is saying here using this abusive language is part of what's down inside of us that's wrong. What's coming out of my mouth is testifying to what's wrong down on the side of me. Verse Jesus says, that is what defiles a man. Now, how do we clean this stuff up? How do we get it out of our lives? And I want to stress this. Getting this out of our lives and keeping it out of our lives and keeping the heart clean and keeping the heart pure is only going to happen is we consistently discipline ourselves to do what I'm about to talk about. Okay, it just doesn't happen because we want it to happen. We have to take some deliberate action for it to happen. And just because we know Jesus is our Savior doesn't mean that we get a clear card that means that we're never going to fall into this stuff. Because if we don't take this action that I'm about to talk about, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture, so write these down and follow along with me. Number one... Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now notice what he says. Do not be conformed to this world, or it could be translated to this age. In other words, don't look around you and see the way the folks around you are talking and acting and thinking, doing what he just talked about, and say, Man, I'm going to conform myself to that. But he says, Be transformed how? By the renewal of your mind. Now, the word transform there is the Greek word metamorphos from which we get the whole concept of a caterpillar going through the metamorphing to become the butterfly. And what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 12 is take your heart, take your mind, and let the Lord begin, and I can't stress the word process enough, a process of shaping and molding and changing our minds to think after Jesus and to think after the things of the Lord and to have a heart that is after Him. But he says that this is a metamorphous type of process. This takes time to happen, and we got to stay at it. It's not always the most exciting process in the world, but it's one that's got to be taking place in our lives. Renewal. This changing process transformed by the renewing, the changing of our mind, I'm changing from what Jesus talked about to being changed into what He wants me to come, is part of deliverance. When God delivers us, and the concept of salvation in Scripture is basically deliverance. When you see it talks about He saves us, He's delivering us. When He talks about salvation, that's deliverance. He is delivering us from what Jesus just outlined here, and He is transforming us. He is changing us. He's taking us through this metamorphing process to be changed to be like Him, and that is deliverance. Deliverance is not just about coming out of the negative stuff. Deliverance is about also becoming what Jesus wants me to become and what He's shaping me to become. Now, folks, the reason I'm stressing that is this. If you and I stop with, i got to get rid of the sin. i got to get rid of the sin. i got to repent of the sin. I can't have the sin in my life. But we stop with that, and we don't let Him change us into what He wants to change us into. We're going to end up going right back into the sin again. I've seen folks that have done a great job sometimes of repenting. That is, they say, Lord, forgive me of the sin. I don't want to do this anymore. But then they turn right around and go back into it again. Why is that? Because we didn't replace the negative that was taken out of our lives with what He's got for us. And that changing process is to begin to think after Him and to think like Him. Now, the next verse we're going to look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And I want to zero in on the second part of that verse. And take, now that is a command, that is taking initiative. That is, being aggressive and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's saying that I've got to take the initiative, to take the responsibility, to take every thought and make it captive to obey Christ. Now, I'm no expert on oncology, But my understanding is that if you have cancer and you successfully go through cancer treatments, that you're going to have to go back periodically for checkups. And the reason for that is that there is one cancer cell that's floating around in the body. There's the possibility that the cancer can reoccur and it can begin to multiply again. So that's the reason, after you've had a struggle with cancer, and they'll say, well, we, think, we hope you're cancer-free, but you're going to have to come back periodically for more tests every six months and every year, etc., because we got to make sure that there are no more cancer cells floating around in your body. When he says, take every thought captive to obey Christ, what Paul is saying there to us is simply this. Listen, as long as we've got a thought, as long as we've got a thought, that's not subjected to the lordship of Jesus, there's a possibility you can start multiplying and taking us in the wrong direction. And this is, folks, sometimes the game we play with ourselves. I've got this area of my life right with God, and this area of my life right with God, and this area with my life of my life right with God, but I'll keep this area over here to myself. I'm going to just sort of enjoy this, this one thing. And Jesus, you ought to be happy because you're a Lord of 98% of my life. So what's wrong with this little 3% or 2% over here? I won't even act on it, Lord. I just think about it every now and then, but I'm not going to even act on it. Paul says, no, every thought, has got to be taken captive so that it obeys Christ. Why does he have to be so strict? Why does he have to say every thought? It's not because he's trying to make life impossible. He knows that if we've got that one place that we're sort of holding and we say, well, I won't act on this. I'll just play with it in my mind every now and then. He knows that if we do that, that the day is going to come When one thought leads to another thought, and then it leads to a bunch of thoughts, and then it leads to dwelling on it, and then it begins to shape us. And before we've even known it, that 3% has now become 30%, that becomes 60%, that becomes 90% that takes over us. And often the one place that we're holding back is often the one place where He wants to do a work in us and perhaps use us the greatest. And it holds us back and it wrecks what God is intending to do. Final verse, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. What I've talked about thus far is the initiative and the responsibility that you and I have to take. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6 is what God does. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, because you belong to Him, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, the Holy Spirit, into your hearts, into the depths of who you are, into that place that Jesus identified as being so fraught with sin, He's saying the Spirit of God has been sent into that place to do what? To cry out to God. Now, Jesus intentionally here uses two titles, Abba and Father. Abba was a term in those days of endearment and closeness. It would roughly be equivalent to dad or daddy or some type of phrase like that. Father is the idea of respect. So I am saying that the Spirit of God empowers me to feel close to the Father God, to cry out to the Father God, and to have that sense of being close to Him. And Father, the Spirit of God works in me to say, Lord God, I respect You, and I will obey You out of that sense of being close to You and out of that sense of respect for you. Now, why does He use those two terms, Abba, Father? Why does the Spirit empower us in prayer and in literally in the living of our lives to say Abba, Father? I think it's for two reasons. Number one, the people that we most want to please, the people we most are closest to, are those people that we have the deepest, dearest relationship with. In other words, the people that I, if I have a cold, distant relationship with somebody... I don't really, you know, man, I just want to please them, I want to make them happy, want to hang out with them. It's like I get around them, I tolerate them, etc., and then I'm out of there as fast as I can. The Abba is the idea that I want to please Him, and I want Him to be Lord, and I want to obey Him because I love Him, and I recognize how much He loves me, and we are close together. That's the idea there. Now, the Father is respect. No relationship is going anywhere without respect. And so this idea of saying, Abba, Father, is He is working in us to say, Lord, I respect you, and because I respect you, I'm going to obey you. And I can't stress that enough. The fabric of any relationship, the foundation of any healthy, decent relationship has to be respect. And so the Spirit of God is empowering us by creating and growing and developing in us a respect for God, a respect for the Lord Jesus, but also a closeness and an intimacy with Him. Years ago, when my son was a little boy, we had a a habit that whenever I was with him, uh, we would part company. I'd go back to work or whatever, but we would give each other a hug and a kiss, kiss on the cheek and a hug. And one day I came home and I ate lunch and I was in a big hurry to go do something important which in the context of the story I'm going to tell you wasn't important at all. And I had lunch and when I finished lunch I was running out the door and I got in the car. And all of a sudden, the front door swung open, and out came my preschool son. And he looked at me, and he came running down the sidewalk, and he said, Hug and a kiss, hug and a kiss. And I realized we hadn't done that, so I got out of the car and walked towards him, lecturing myself the whole way about what was really important in life, and got up to him, and he threw those little arms around me and gave me a hug and a kiss. But he did that because of the relationship that we had. And I think what what Paul is trying to say to us here in Galatians is that when it comes to battling what's inside of us, it is a battle. It is spiritual warfare. Jesus came to wage that spiritual warfare, but he recognizes that we cannot do it on our own. We're never going to get the victory ourselves. And he understands that. So He says, this is what I'm requiring of you. This is the action, the initiative that you've got to take. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to place the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was in my Son, the same Spirit in my Son that enabled Him to cry out to me and be close to me and call upon me and know my presence. That's what I'm placing in you. And that Spirit inside of you is going to cry out to the Father. And say, Father, I want to give you a hug. I want to give you a kiss. I want to love you. I want to be close to you. I want my heart to be after you, Lord. Even to the place of heartbreaking obedience, if that's what it takes, as it did with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And He's saying that He will empower us with the Spirit. And you see, when that happens in our lives, when we are yielding to Him and seeking that in our lives, through His Word, in prayer, then what we looked at in Matthew, the theft, the adultery, the sexual morality, all that, is going to be eliminated from our lives. That is the renewing of our heart in our mind. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to say to you, Lord, would you renew me? God, I want to be in that daily process and place of being transformed to be like Jesus. Lord, Would You teach us and would You help us to know what it is for the Spirit inside of us to cry out to You, Lord, Abba Father. God, help us to slow down enough in life and to listen to You so that You can speak that through us to You, cry out to You, Lord, sometimes when we look at this, we get so defeated. And we get defeated before we ever get started because we don't tap into how you empower us. Lord, empower us, we ask, by the Holy Spirit of God, to say, Abba, Father. Lord, I am reaching out to you and asking for your help. Asking for your strength. In a moment of silent prayer, I want to give you right now the opportunity to say that to Him. Father, cleanse us. And Lord, by the power of Your Spirit, yearn through us for You. with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus and choose to follow Him and serve Him in just a moment as we sing, I invite you to come. We'd love to receive you and pray with you to give your life to the Lord Jesus. and Follow Him. Know His forgiveness and His cleansing. If you're here and you believe and sense that God is moving upon you and calling you to become part of our church family and to join us here and to walk with us here as we serve him, then we invite you to come and be part of us. If the Lord is speaking to you in any other capacity, we invite you to come. If you just want to come and kneel and pray, the altar is open, and we invite you to do so. In these moments of invitation, may we respond to him however he's moving in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand together and sing and come and